my wife doesn't like the new look, so I can blame Pastor now and <laughs> say it's his fault. Um, I want to talk to you this morning as, as we were looking at, at uh, the armor and, and we came to uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 15, which we're going to read in a moment. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me and then Pastor gave me a uh, couple books that he'd been using, and I read through those, and I left them at home this morning, so you'll get them. Um, but uh, one of the things that stood out to me, and then as I was reading through one of the books, uh, he kept reiterating it as well, is really the theme of our message this morning, and it's fighting from the place of victory. Uh, we're not fighting for victory. Christ has already won the victory, but we're fighting from a place of victory. Uh, and so if you would, uh, pastor's been having a stand, so let's stand for the reading of the word. And Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to start with verse 14 just because it flows a little bit better. But uh, it says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And you may be seated. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would just bless this word this morning as we uh, look at the, the, the fact of evil and, and the reality of the enemy. And Lord, as we learn to stand in a place with you, a peace and a breast, and just Lord of security in your name. Amen. Uh, Roger DePew uh, in 1962 became the police chief of Clare, Michigan. And when that happened, he was in his early 20s. He was the youngest police chief in the nation at the time. And after that, uh, as he became the police chief, and it was a new field for him, he kind of accidentally fell into this field of police work, and it became interesting, interesting to him, and he began to think about how criminals thought and how they acted, and so he began to work with the FBI. Uh, he was part of the FBI's first SWAT team in the country, he helped set up uh, Quantico, uh, the FBI uh, headquarters on a military base where they do profiling. He was one of the first criminal profilers, uh, but he was also a man of faith. And as he began to deal with some of the highest profile uh, serial murders and some of the wickedness that goes on around us, uh, he began to lose his faith. And he wrote a book called... Uh, between good and evil, and the book is really a journey of how he lost his faith and how he recovered his faith. But this is what he has to say about evil, and I just want you to to think about this. And it's uh, it amazes me because I sent this out to Pastor Tuesday, and then uh, as the events in Colorado unfolded this week, uh, a little bit personal for us. Uh, we actually lived in Aurora for a while, Colorado. Uh, in the, uh, the same apartment building as my brother and sister-in-law, and they were up this weekend for, for the Muskegon uh, bike event, you know, all the Harleys riding around and stuff, and so they came up with their three-wheel Harley. And so we were kind of watching this stuff on the news, and we were wondering what exactly the address was of this apartment this guy lived in because it looks like our old apartments. Um, so that was a little bit uh, personal to me. The second thing is they said this guy's from San Diego originally, and his last name is Holmes, and that's my mother's grandmother's name on my mother's side of the family, 
and we have uh, homes relatives all over the country, but we have some in San Diego. And so I was kind of watching Facebook to see, you know, if he was related to any of my mother's cousins, or, or and she has cousins that are in their 80s, so he would be like their grandson or great-grandson. Um, fortunately, it doesn't look uh, like he's related. Uh, but after, after sending this out and, and this definition I'm about to read to you and then watching these events unfold, I, w I was just amazed at just how timely it is. And this is what Roger DePew says. He says, evil is more than a vague notion. It is an entity, and it is manifest on the earth. It has reflexes and intuition, senses vulnerability, and changes its form to adapt to its surroundings. Those who do not believe the devil walks the earth have not seen the things I have seen. Evil is not a discrete entity that springs forth fully formed. It is born in the mind, takes root there, a fantasy, and prospers when human restraint can no longer contain it. I have seen it devour the personalities of men. I want to talk to you when we're talking about this battlefield and, and help you to realize that it's here. That the enemy tries to attack us here because this is our point of vulnerability if we don't know where we stand and in whom we stand and if we don't stand firm. And the reality is, and we try to deny it every day, I mean, wh what are the chances of us walking into a movie theater and that being the last day that we live? So we know evil's there, but we try to say it won't happen to me, it can't happen to me, and the reality is, is evil's at work all around us. But we also have to be balanced. We have to realize we are in a war, there is an enemy, we have to stand fast, we have to stay alert, but we can't live our lives controlled by fear of evil. Otherwise, the enemy's won as well. And so C.S. Lewis gives us another uh, thought on this. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. As I'm talking to you about the reality of evil today, I plan on telling you a couple stories that for some of you, you may not have had that experience. You may not have had an encounter like that they will seem unreal to you. Don't disbelieve the reality of evil and of, uh, and of the devil and of his demons. But on the other hand, uh, I can think of a, a time we were uh, in, in a church we were with when I was with Teen Challenge. Uh, we actually had a deliverance ministry operating out of that church. And so we were part of the deliverance team. Virginia and I were, were leaders on the deliverance team. And we went to Brownsville, which was in the midst of a revival at that time, and they had asked us to come, and some of these people that were getting saved needed some serious deliverance. And so we went to Brownsville, and our first night there, and we would always, when we'd go into a place, uh, we would go in the day before we were going to do the ministry, and we'd pray and everything there, and we'd pray against principalities and against powers. And then when we went to our hotel rooms, we would pray uh, in our hotel rooms, and uh, that night, it had been late. We'd went out to dinner with the, the team from Brownsville, and, and uh, 
we got back to the hotel room late in Virginia, and I just forgot to, you know, we would just anoint with oil and pray in our hotel room. And I literally woke up that night just violently sick, and I actually woke up from a nightmare. I dreamt that there was a rat <laughs> on my pillow. And so I woke up with the start, and I realized there wasn't anything there. But, I mean, I had, like, in my dream really seen this huge rat, and I was violently sick. And so I rush into the bathroom, and I'm just, I don't know if I can minister tomorrow. I don't know if I can be part of the team. And they had us divided into colors, so I was what was called a red shirt, which meant that I kind of um, kept watch on the team that we had praying. I was actually walking behind them, and there were about eight or ten of them and then I would step in as needed if they encountered a situation that they didn't know how to deal with. And so it was really imperative that I be there. And there were about four or five of us that were red shirts, and if I wasn't there, that would slow things down. And uh, I was just praying as I'm violently ill, and I just realized we hadn't prayed. And so right away, I just rebuked the spirits. I just said, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over this, I rebuke it. And the sickness left. It was gone that fast. Um, that's just an example of just in our day-to-day lives sometimes, you suddenly realize that something is spiritual. Now, on the other hand, as we had been praying that evening for the event, we'd had a woman as we were praying in a circle And she began to pray, and she began to talk to all the demons and say, I recognize you, demon of this part, and demon of this, and demon of this. And she's like rebuking all these demons and taking on Lucifer himself. And I'm sitting there as she's praying, and I'm thinking, this lady's got too much of a fascination with demons. And we don't need to be praying against the demons. We just need to be praying that the glory of God would be manifest. And as I'm thinking that, one of our... Uh, team leader said that to her. He said, stop, this is enough of this. Uh, we don't want to have an unhealthy fixation on the demonic. And so I, I don't want you to think that everything's demonic. I, I want you to understand that we just need to be able to recognize the demonic when it arises. Uh, there are a lot of things in our life that are the result of just the fallenness of the world. There are a lot of things that are just the result of our own flesh. There are a lot of things that are just the result of human weakness and, and human lack of human understanding. Uh, there, there's things that are just the natural order of things because things have fallen. And then there's the demonic. And we need to distinguish between the, th- those. Uh, the Bible tells us to test the spirits. And we always make this really complicated, but it really doesn't have to be. There's three spirits we need to test. Is this thing of demonic origin? Is it of human origin? Is it my flesh or somebody else's flesh? Or is this the Spirit of God at work? And we can usually tell when the Spirit of God is at work, and we can usually tell when something's our flesh. I know my proclivities to sin. I know the things I like. If something comes into my mind and it's just totally not me, I know that's demonic. And I just rebuke it and go on through life and and don't think about it. And so to be aware of those things as we're talking uh, and and not have an unhealthy interest. Just lost my notes for a second if you wonder why the pause. So that key principle is what I want us to take away from today is that we do not fight for a place of victory. We fight from a place of victory. And we have a really simple outline for you today, something that I think you'll see. 
uh, is simple for a reason because I think it's something I want you to keep in your mind. But our key points are all up there, and we'll expound on them in a moment. We submit to our commander-in-chief. We stand on holy ground. We state the demand for surrender, and we're solid in our faith. Paul is looking at the soldier chained to him. Uh, he's referring to some passages in the Old Testament. Pastor shared some from Isaiah last week. And he's, he's and, I, and, and I'm not sure, you know, scholars debate whether the soldier has, he's chained to Paul is actually in full war, war, warrior armor, you know. But Paul's looking at him knowing how they fight. And this morning our focus is on those shoes, that gospel of peace. And it's interesting because everything except the word of God is considered a defensive weapon. The word of God is the offensive weapon. But there are some scholars that say the shoes are also not only a defensive but an offensive weapon. And here's why. Because as the Roman soldiers strapped on those shoes for battle, and those shoes, by the way, we would probably call them boots. They went right up to here. They protected their shins. They were leather and wrapped around their shins, and they were tight uh, to keep the, the, their legs uh, in place and, and stiff. And oftentimes their shoes were embedded with glass and with nails. And they would take those shoes, and they would always plant at least one foot very firm, and they wouldn't move. And a lot of times when they were in the midst of a battle, you could get four Roman soldiers, and they could take on a whole lot of people. They would literally stand shoulder to shoulder, back to back, and they'd be in a circle of four if they were trying to, to hold a defensive position. If they were trying to advance, they would break up and stand side to side, and they would just walk and stand and fight, walk and stand and fight. And even those shoes embedded with nails and glass would sometimes come up and give a kick into the shin of the, the soldier that they were fighting against. And so that's the idea Paul's thinking about here. He's saying when you're, you're in a position that the enemy's trying to take ground and you've done everything you can to do, then stand fast. But the idea also is you're in the midst of a battle and you're wielding your sword. And when Pastor talks, you know, in the next few weeks about that sword and that weapon, the idea is to know that weapon well. The idea is to be able to wield that sword from the position you're in and attack. The idea is to pick up uh, that foot in that place where you're standing fast and kick the enemy. There's another concept Paul's thinking of here. Shoes shod with the gospel of peace, and we hear that, and our automatic assumption is we're sharing the gospel. We're sharing the good news. That's what the gospel is of Jesus Christ. But the gospel was not just a biblical word. It was a word that was brought into the canon of scripture to describe something for us to understand what the gospel really is. The gospel in the culture that Paul lived in, in those ancient cultures, was a proclamation of victory. So if you were living in a little village and Alexander the Great had just swept through the kingdom that you were a part of, 
and he had just conquered your king, there would be a messenger that would come to you and proclaim peace. And you might not have known that this war was going on, you know, maybe 50, 60, 100 miles from your home where the king's center was. So you might think, what do you mean you're proclaiming peace? We're at peace. And really what it was is it was a call to submission. It was, we're proclaiming to you the great king Alexander the Great has conquered your king, and by authority of Alexander the Great, you are now at peace with us, or you're dead. <laughs> and that was your choices. And so when we're talking about the gospel of peace, there's that idea that you're in complete submission to the commander-in-chief. I always hate when people say, you know, well, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I didn't accept him as Lord. You can't do that. You're either in his camp or out of his camp. You're either on his side or you're his enemy. He is Lord. He is Lord whether you accept he's Lord or not. He is Lord. You're just making a decision, am I going to submit to his lordship or am I going to stand and fight with the enemy against him? So you submit to your commander-in-chief, and then when you stand, you're standing from a place where he has won the victory. That's why it's holy ground. You remind the enemy of the cross of Calvary. We have a friend that visited the church here a few months back, and they came up and, you know, her and her mother spent a weekend with us, and she met Pastor, and uh, she's a really nice lady, and if you met her, you, you know, you, you'd think, boy, she's friendly. And she used to be our neighbor, and they lived next door to us, and she had some issues. She wasn't saved, wasn't serving the Lord. She was smoked, was addicted to cigarettes. Um, her daughter would talk about, uh, this friend of ours, her, her dad had died, and her daughter would talk about how Grandpa would come and visit her after he died and sit on the edge of her bed and talk to her. And so we're like, oh, this is some creepy stuff. We're pastoring at the time. And she actually went to uh, a local uh, Baptist church in the area, and it's really interesting even that story. The pastor of the Baptist church, his parents are Assemblies of God pastors, and uh, so uh, they, he kind of had that connection to us. We knew his parents well. Um, but she went to that church, and it, you know, it was a nice church, and, and they were nice to her and treated her nice. And on Mother's Day one year, she decided to come to our church because she woke up a little bit late, and our service started later than that service. And so she rushed to our church, and she was late to our church, and I had actually, you know, preached this. My wife says I'm a 50-minute preacher, so you guys better hope not today. Uh. Um, but I had preached a really short sermon that day because it was Mother's Day and wanted them to get out, you know, to the restaurants or home to eat and just preached this really nice, mild-mannered sermon and had told the ladies to line up, and I was going to lay hands on them and pray for them. And just a few days before this service, this friend of ours had went with her aunt and mother, and they'd went to see a famous evangelist uh, was speaking, and he was known for having a deliverance ministry. And they came back, and they said, uh, when Robin was at this thing, she started growling whenever the evangelist would walk by. And, and uh, so we're just kind of, you know, we put it up there. Now, my wife and I have had encounters all through our lives, and, and ministry with spiritual things, uh, both good and bad. And so uh, we just kind of, you know, chalk it up there. We'll see. So then she comes in on Mother's Day after all this event, 
and I'm praying for the people, and I'm actually almost done praying for all the women, and she comes in and comes up for prayer, and I put my hand on her head, and she drops to the floor and begins to scream in the most unearthly scream you have ever heard. And all the men in my church get up and grab their little children and run out the door in the back. <laughs> and she's a big woman. So I'm like, okay, this can't be done in private now because I have nobody to help me carry her up. And my mom's there, so I'm like, oh, great. My mom needs to see this. And my aunt's there um, on the front row, and they're watching this. And all the women, though, they run forward. They hear a woman in pain, and they run forward. And uh, so the men had, a, had to live that down for a while. That I'm like, thanks, guys. You all went out the back, you know, and it's your wives that came to the front. I thought you guys were the heroic ones. And we prayed for her, and she said she accepted Jesus Christ, and, you know, we rebuked these things, and we thought, this is cool, everything's done, and went and had Mother's Day, and she started coming to our church. A few months later, I had a friend who's an evangelist originally from South Africa, and uh, now he actually goes into Pakistan, and he, he goes in and does crusades in Pakistan. Um, and he was coming to our church to visit, and so uh, he's there for a week, and he's preaching. And the last day that he's there, she comes to see the evangelist. He lays hands on her, and she starts manifesting demonic things again. And they're just horrible things and horrible sounds. And he just says, cause, because he's doing his evangelism, be still. And he goes on and ministers to everybody else. And the service gets done that night, and he doesn't deal with her. And he goes, we're, you know, they all go home, and I'm getting ready to take him out to dinner. And I said, what do we do about this woman? <laughs> You're leaving tomorrow, and you stirred something up. And he said, I told it to quiet down. He said, but you're her pastor. You need to deal with this. So I'm thinking, great. <laughs> we went through the next three weeks of literally hell. This woman lived across from us, remember, we would be home at night, and literally our whole house would start shaking. And we'd just hear this wind, and we'd hear these noises. We drove up into our house one night, and one of the things that came out is, has uh, we dealt with her was this idea of a familiar spirit. And familiar spirits that would manifest, she was buried into Native American stuff, so she had like things, of paintings of wolves and of cougars and of you know animals we literally come home one night and and my daughters went through this they even even my daughter i have one daughter that's not really serving the lord right now she will tell people don't play with the demonic because they witness this we pulled in our driveway one night and literally there was a black jaguar like cat standing at the end of our driveway about yay tall and as we pulled in, we all saw it, and it disappeared. It just vanished. I would go to the church, and I would lock myself. We had a closet that we used for a prayer closet, and I would lock myself in there and be praying, and it would sound like in our fellowship hall, 
every chair in the hall was being thrown and I would go back there and they'd be all in place. We would go into our house and there would be little animal things just sitting in our house. She'd gotten in our house and set them in there. Uh, my wife would drive into work with her because they worked in the same general area and my wife said she couldn't even drive into work with her anymore because she was literally like trying to go off the road and so my wife didn't want to get killed. So we were every day praying that she would be protected. She was melting down, and if, if a psychologist would have come in and saw her, they would have just, you know, heavily medicated her and said she's schizophrenic. Uh, she's not in reality. But we knew differently. And so we, we had to do something. Uh, I mean, she'd come to church service, and one day I'm up preaching at, in service, and she walks in, and literally everybody in our church saw she began to get, like, creases in her skin her skin just ch changed in shapes that a human skin can't change into and uh, I just told her be quiet and I went back and I laid hands on her and she took her hands and literally began to claw into my arm and I said stop I said I know who I represent you stop it in the name of Jesus and this demonic voice said I can tell you all kinds of things about her and I said, I don't need to know them. You stop now. So we gathered a couple other couples in our church, and we came up with the plan. And we said, we'll have her, you know, we, we had her reading the Bible, and she was just tormented. So we told her, you know, just read your Bible every day. We gave her some things to read. Uh, we told her to, to, to spend a couple days before this event fasting, and then we told her on a Friday night, at this time, you come to the church. And we're going to be there, and we're going to have three couples there, and we're going to be ready to see you come to a place of deliverance. Now, a good Assemblies of God theology tells you that a person that, you, when I prayed for her on Mother's Day, and she seemed to be delivered, and she seemed to accept the Lord, that you can't be demonized and, and still be a Christian. And all I have to say is my theology got blown, and, and the way I kind of look at it is that may be true as far as in our inner being, but remember the battlefield's here, and the enemy controls here. And she would tell us that sometimes it'd be like these voices, she'd be hearing them outside of her head, and then they would come inside of her head. And, and so this thing seemed to be controlling her, but she wanted to be free. So we had her reading this scripture, and we had her doing all this, and we were telling her about it, and some, one of our groups said, well, what if she doesn't show up on Friday? These, these demonic things, I mean, our whole church was in fear. These demonic things seem to be so bad. What if she doesn't come? And I said, well, I remember when I was in Bible college, one of our professors talked about a lady in his church that had a deliverance ministry, and she just uh, said one time she had an appointment with somebody, and they had a demonic manifestation, and she says, well, I'm scheduled for my next counseling appointment. In the name of Jesus, you come back tomorrow at 10 o'clock, and we'll deal with this. So I thought, maybe that'll work. So we did. I said, I want to speak to the spirit and control. And I said, in the name of Jesus, at 6 o'clock on Friday, you will be here. And so Friday comes around, and it's like 5.58, and she's not there and we're praying, and we've been there. I mean, we've set the stage. We've been there for probably two hours. 
and the other families are looking at me saying, I don't think she's going to come. And I said, no, we spoke in the authority of Jesus. I said, that demon has to obey that's driving her. We, she will come. And I kid you not, at 6 o'clock sharp, we all felt a, br- a wind just blow through the building. And our door swung open, and you could see uh, out the windows at the side of our church. And here she come walking, and it was like she was in a trance. And we just said, have a seat. <laughs> and we proceeded to spend a night. And if you don't believe in those things, now I believed in the supernatural. I was involved in the occult before I was saved. But I saw things that I didn't believe. And all I could say is that Jesus Christ was in control and Jesus Christ had the victory. And before it was, by the time it was over, she was saved. She was filled with the spirit. She didn't smoke anymore. And she, you, if you saw her today, and there's people sometimes, she's still a little rough around the edges, but they see her. And I say, but if you could have saw her 10 years ago, this is not the same woman. And she loves the Lord. That's victory. That's standing on holy ground. That's stating the demand for surrender from the enemy. Because, see, the enemy's already lost. He just wants us to remind him to surrender. That's being solid in our faith because we believe the word of God. See, the Bible tells us there are demons out and about. The Bible tells us there's an invisible war that's going on. The world can tell us it's, it's all psychological, it's all different. But I stand on the Bible because the Bible says it's true. Now, everybody that has a psychological issue I don't think is demonized. I have family members that battle with mental illness. Everybody that has a physical issue, I don't think is demonized. Everybody that has a financial issue, I don't think is demonized. But there are times when we can discern it. Now, that's a far-fetched to some of you. That's a, 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 a out of your bounds of experience. But how about this one? You have a family budget. You're maintaining your budget. You're doing everything the way your budget is telling you to do it the way you set it up, and you still can't meet your bills. And things keep happening that are reducing your income. And things keep happening, and you look in your bank account, and all of a sudden something got automatically drawn out, and you don't know why, because you thought you budgeted well. And your finances just seem in chaos. Virginia and I, when we were in Bible college, we went through something like that, and we realized... We're not going to be able to pay our rent this month. And so we actually, we attended a large church. We actually went to, and and we both worked at the church at various times, and we actually went to the accounting uh, manager of our church, and we said, Lyle, can you come and look at, I mean, he, and our church had a big accounting department of seven or eight people, and he ran it all. And we said, can you come and look at our budget and see what we're doing wrong? And I'll never forget, he came in our kitchen, and I mean, we had everything out there for him. And you, you feel naked when you're exposing this much of your, you know, you know, your money to somebody. We had our budget out there. We had all our bills. We had our checkbook. We showed him where all of a sudden a, a check had bounced, and we didn't know why, and it was just the way the bank processed it. And so then this cost us money. And he spent about an hour just very thoroughly looking at our budget. And then he looks up at me. And he said, you guys are doing everything right. 
I'm like, well, it's not working if we're doing everything right. And I'm like, how can you help me us? He says, there's nothing you can do different. I'm like, how can you help us then? He's like, well, we're going to write a check for your rent. And I'm like, Lyle, that's good. But what about next month? You know, the church can't pay our rent every month. He said, this isn't your problem. He said, this is spiritual warfare. He said, this is an attack of the enemy on your finances. And he said, so after I write that check, we're going to have a time of prayer, and we're going to rebuke the devourer. Now, every time you have a financial problem, it's not the devil. <laughs> if you went out and broke your budget and bought something you shouldn't have, if you're spending where you shouldn't be, if you're not following God's principles, you have you to blame. But there are times you know you're doing it all right. And I so appreciate the godliness of this man because he right there, just matter-of-factly, like you would picture a CPA doing, said, God, these numbers add up, but in the spirit realm they don't. And so we rebuke the devourer. He was a thief from the beginning. His only purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan, we renounce your works. And I mean, he's just very matter-of-factly, not a lot of emotion, not very Pentecostal, you know, with the hallelujah, and he started speaking in tongues. And No, none of that. He just rebuked the devourer. And miraculously, our finances changed overnight. And we had abundance. See, we were tithing. We were budgeting. We were looking at our finances realistically. We were saying this is what we can spend this month. We were putting money away in case our car broke down. We were doing everything that, that we had been taught to do. But something was still at wrong. Still wrong. We were submitted to the commander-in-chief. We were standing on holy ground. We were solid in our faith. Our treasurer needed to state the command for surrender. See, this is practical stuff. You know, you get excited if I tell you about, oh, this person that was demonized and this person that encountered demonic things. But this is practical stuff. This is how God tells us to live. I look at the shooting. Right away, we want to attribute a shooting like that because it's so outside of our understanding to demonic influence, and sometimes it is. But sometimes it's just a murderous heart. It's just somebody who's let them s their mind go down in that direction, and they've given in to Satan, and they've given in to his schemes, but there's not really a demon possessing the person. There might be a demon speaking to the person. They just have a murderous heart, like Cain. They're just envious of others. And they go down a trail till they get to that point. And our job with spiritual warfare is to kill those things at the root. To kill those things, James talks about the progression of sin, and he says, you know, it's, he, he takes you through the process, and then when it's conceived, it gives birth. We're supposed to kill it before then. But I do know that the Word also says that in the last days, things will wax more and more evil. 
And so when I hear people around me say, what's going on in our country? I heard a radio host the other day say, when I was a kid, you never heard of a school shooting. And now we hear school shootings and workplace shootings and this guy in the theater. What's happened to our country? And you can tell those people it's because we've turned away from the principles of the gospel. It's because we haven't submitted to our commander-in-chief. It's because we aren't standing in the position of holy ground. That's why it's happening. And it's a condemnation on the church when we see those things happening because it says that we have not stood in the position as defenders that we're called to stand, as the soldiers that we're called to be. We'll, we'll never change this country through the political process. But we can spiritually be involved in the political process. We can make decisions based on our spiritual understanding. But we as believers have a dual role. We also need to be salt and light. We need to be spreading the gospel. We need to be standing for the gospel. We need to be praying the gospel into existence in places. My wife and I, when we were first married, we were married a whole two months, and then my wife had to have surgery. And we went to... Uh, uh, we lived we lived in Aurora at the time in the suburb of Denver, and we went to the hospital there. And they basically sh she had a tumor on her ovary, and they basically started saying it might be cancerous, and they might have to do a hysterectomy. And and I mean we're married two months, and we might never have children, and and uh, so they scared us really good. And so we decided to get a second opinion. So we called up. At the time, Oral Roberts had the City of Faith Hospital, and he was really promoting the City of Faith Hospital on television. And we called them up and said, you know, you're saying you can get free medical care. Can we get free medical care? And, and we told them our situation, and they got in touch with the other hospital, got the things, and they called my wife and said, we don't think it's cancer. We think we can save your ovary. Come. And so we went and moved to Tulsa, literally packed up everything. We both had friends and from our church, and... I'd lived in Tulsa before, and we had a friend in Tulsa uh, that had been my roommate. We moved to Tulsa. My wife has surgery, and while she's in the hospital having surgery, I was staying with my friend. And then after my wife got out of the hospital, she was going to stay with me until we found an apartment. And my friend who had served the Lord, uh, just things in his life weren't right. He had some other people staying there, and it just didn't feel like a r the right environment. And uh, I'm praying one night, and up in the corner of the room, literally, I heard, like, the sound of two swords clanging, and I saw sparks. And so I'm, wow, what is that? And, and I just got this image of a battle in the heavenlies uh, on our behalf as I was praying, and that there were literally angelic and demonic hosts fighting. And so my wife gets out of the hospital, and I didn't tell anybody this, and we're laying in, in bed one night, and I'm telling her about it, and she thinks I am just telling her a tall tale. And I, so first I have to convince her I'm serious. Not that I ever lie to my wife, everybody, but... <laughs> Uh, so I get her convinced that I'm serious, and she's like, that's just crazy. That's just insane. I said, no. I said, really? 
And I said, you know, something, there's just a spirit in this house. Something's not right. And I said, why don't we pray, pray and see what happens? So we're praying, and instantly there was a clang of swords and these sparks. And so my wife turns on the lights. No, there's no light over there because it looked like a light shorting out or something. She checks the whole room, and she's like, wow. Well, a few nights later, I'm at work. It's going to be shortly before we, mo we move into our new uh, apartment. Uh, my wife literally has a cut down her abdomen from her surgery. The guy that we kind of thought was behind the situation uh, just in the house that had been staying with our friend, because he was very generous, you know, he'd open his house up, let people stay. W he had asked him to leave and stay somewhere else while we were there because we had actually expressed our discomfort. And nobody's at home. My friend is out with his girlfriend, and uh, this guy comes over. And Virginia's in bed, and she says, he comes into the bedroom. He says, oh, I need to use the mirror. I had to take a shower, and then I need to use the mirror, and then I'll be out of here. And she thinks that's creepy, and there's no lock on the door. So he, he leaves, and she's listening for him. And then she falls asleep. And she knows he's still in the house somewhere, but she's, you know, just recovering from surgery. And she says some point in the night, she starts feeling her covers being pulled off of her. And she wakes up with the start, and she looks down, and this guy is standing there. And she said she doesn't know why she did it, but she started to rebuke him in the name of Jesus. And as she did, he just stopped and immobilized him, whatever his plans were and intentions were. And she said, literally, as she's rebuking him, she can see faces, different faces, appear in front of his face, demonic faces. So she rebukes him. She literally, it says, in the name of Jesus, get out of this house, drives him out of the house. She says, then she's scared to death. This house was not in a good part of Tulsa. So she dives out the window and runs to the neighbors, and she's thinking, after she's knocking on his doorway, I don't know him. He might be a bad guy, too. I, and you got to understand, Virginia was 19 years old at this time. And uh, he, you know, the guy is like, yeah, you can come in. And then they watch. And, and when my friend gets home, they go out and tell him. And uh, he calls his dad up, who actually owned the house. And his dad says, you know, he's, he can't come there anymore. They call me up at work. I leave work. And I said, because I, he had been hanging around a little bit uh, outside, and so they had been talking to him. And I said, if he's there when I get there, he's not going to be there much longer. And I was going to get physical with him. Uh, by the time I got there, he was gone. My wife had the victory because it was spiritual warfare at work. See, we all live in that world. We don't see it. We don't know all the time what's going on there. Paul says we see through the glass dimly. But we're called to stand. And we're called to stand fast. And finally, we're called 
like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, to destroy the arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I'm excited when pastor will get to the point of talking about the word as an offensive weapon. Just shared briefly and just told you some incidents and just put a little outline up there for you to look at. But this is why we fight from the place of victory. This is what tells us all that we need to know. This is what tells us in the face of things that seem different what truth is. This is what I refer to and what I stand on when I'm challenged in my beliefs in the workplace. When I'm challenged by the realities of the world we live in. When somebody says, tell me, who are you to tell me this is wrong? I, I don't, but this does. And I have to stand on this. We went to uh, the bike event in Muskegon. And uh, we sat with my brother and sister-in-law and my wife's brother, who's, if you saw my wife's brother, they, they actually took a picture of him uh, for the Muskegon Chronicle, so we're going to look and see if it shows up in the next day or so. Uh, he looks like a biker. Um, he's big. He's, he's balder than Pastor and I. Um, he's got the tattoos all down his arms. And he's sitting there um, with another friend of his who's a biker and another friend of his who was his old drinking buddy, his favorite drinking buddy. And this guy's now the on the pastoral staff of a biker church uh, and is saved. And so he's sitting there, and he's basically there with two Christian bikers. And then my brother and sister-in-law had got up and left, and so we were in their chairs. And we're watching all the different people come by. And so, you know, they're all proud because this lady thought they, they looked like bikers. And she came up and approached them and took pictures of them. And I said, no, you were the safest looking ones because Virginia's sitting there in a dress. And I'm sitting there and we're sitting next to you. She figured if we could sit next to you, you're safe, you know. Because <laughs> um, they had the skull, uh, or my brother-in-law does, you know, he's got the skull ring on. And the, he's got the earrings and the bracelet and the Harley shirt and the Harley. And, uh, but we're just sitting there for a few hours yesterday and I'm having to tell myself, okay, this is family time because this wasn't real exciting to me. I love Harleys, but we're watching the people just sitting in the same spot. And I'm like, I want to go look at some of the bikes. And we're watching the bikers ride by. And I'm looking and I said to Virginia, there's four types of people I see here. There's the people that look like they're, you know, from the upper crust of Muskegon and from the Grand Haven area and stuff that are just coming to look at all these bikers. And they're walking around looking scared, like, why did we come down here? There's the normal people that are like, you know, they like their Harleys and they're, they're, they work day jobs. There are the hardcore bikers most of them are walking with canes or in wheelchairs and you know they got scars and battle scars and face burns and bullet holes and I said and then there are just some plain 
strange people. <laughs> this girl with blue hair, and she has Mardi Gras beads, like, strung down, wrapped around her feet, all over her feet, and she's walking, and there's nothing there, <laughs> you know. And I said, some of those are the scariest because you look them in the eyes and there's just nothing there. But I'm watching them and I'm thinking, man, this is the world I live in now. <laughs> these are the people we have to deal with. Some of these people look like the type of person that could go into a movie theater. And, <laughs> and the reality is that is our world. And most of us can probably isolate ourselves from some of those crazier fringes, and most of us never have to deal with it. But recognize that some of those people got that way because of here. You have those temptations. You have those struggles. Here's where to stop. You have that thought. It might not be murderous at the moment, but this person doesn't deserve to live because of what they did to me. Here's where it stops. And you fight it, no matter how strong the enemy seems, from the place of victory. Standing firm on the foundation that Jesus Christ has set. Let's pray. I know, Pastor, I did do almost 50 minutes. I looked, I looked up, it went... Pshh. Father God... We just pray first if there are people here today that haven't known you and they want to come to a place of victory. If you are one of those people and, and you need to just, you say, I, I just need to have Jesus Christ in my life. I don't even know what victory is. Uh, now's the time. Today's the day. And if you could just put a hand up and we will pray for you. You know, we won't embarrass you, we won't call you out, but we'll pray for you, and pastor will connect with you at some point, and you can have that place of victory. I praise God. I, I, I see, don't see any hands this morning, so I'm assuming you're all believers. So if you're a believer, and you said, I have a battle going on in my mind, I have faced powers of darkness that are threatening to destroy me. Uh, even Chris Berg, when we prayed for him this morning, that's spiritual warfare. And as a church, we need to stand and back him up even in prayer. If that's you, I want you to be bold and I want you to come up so the pastor can pray for you. Uh, and some of you did raise your hands, so come forward. And we want to pray for you. We want to lay hands on you because when the elders lay hands on you, there's a delivering power that comes uh, with the work of the enemy. So if that's you, if you have spiritual warfare going on in your life right now, and it can be the battle in the mind, it can be looking at your finances, it can be struggling with depression, it can be something that's threatening to take you down, then come up right now. Right now, now's the time to take that step of faith. And I did see hands go up, so I'm just challenging you to take that step.
everybody else. We live in a world where some of the problems we face day to day are just the world we live in, but some are the works of the enemy. And so my prayer for you would be that you would begin to see and discern and test the spirits. And if there's something you don't need to be going through because it's the work of the enemy, then you lay it aside. You put it aside. You say in the name of Jesus, be gone. Virginia and I went through an experience when we moved to Saginaw to do ministry. Our car was broken into the first Sunday we were supposed to go to our church that we were associate pastors at. I walked out and my car was across the street with the window broken. Thing after thing kept happening, and I, I was praying one day and said, Lord, why are you letting this happen? And he said, I'm not. You are. Take authority over it. And I did, and instantly it all changed. Overnight. So some of you are in that situation where you just need to have a discerning spirit. And you need to be able to break through, because we have enough things that we have to battle on our own in this fallen world. Uh, that... that day to day that there's not I, I, I mean in this, the sense battle on our own in the sense there's not necessarily a, a supernatural motivation behind it you know every time you get a flat tire the devil didn't poke your tire but there are times where you've gotten a flat tire and you went home and the water heater broke and it's all over the floor and something else and you need to let it Jesus that he's given you manifests in the situation. So, Pastor, would you come up and pray for these? I want to encourage you to pray with us, okay? And uh, just ask the Lord to, to move in a powerful way this morning, okay? And uh, Christ the 